The message you are listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the College Ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for the 2016 New Year's Conference. More information about New Year's Conference can be found at newyearsconference.com. My name is Kenny Hayes, and I work for Campus Outreach at Bradley University. Uh, but I'd love a chance to get to know you guys a little bit as well. So just we'll do the raise a hand thing. How many of you guys have been to New Year's Conference before? Kyle, you're supposed to raise your hand right now. Uh, who's not been to New Year's Conference then? You still? Really? No. Really? Okay. I was wrong. I was wrong. Um, do we do we have any freshmen? Any freshmen? A couple freshmen. How many seniors? So just kind of scatter all on the board. Uh, anybody named Ryan? Oh yeah, got a Ryan back there. Um, well, hey, I'm uh, I'm really excited. This is probably one of my most uh, passionate topics that I like to speak on, just, just sharing our faith with others. Uh, but before I get started, I was going to welcome up Janelle Lucas. She was a student at Olivet Nazarene where I traveled and worked with them for a couple years. So I got to know Janelle for a little while. Now she's on staff with us at Eastern Illinois University. Uh, so she's going to come up and share a little bit of her own personal ministry experience. So you guys can give it up for Janelle. Janelle, can you hold the mic? Okay. This is how it works. Okay. Um, yeah, I'm Janelle. Um, I just graduated. And um, just to give you guys a little picture, evangelism for me has not been easy. And I definitely still feel like I'm in process. Um, and even like my first semester on staff, I can just say again, evangelism is really hard. Um, but um, yeah, I just want to tell like just a few stories. Um, I became a Christian my freshman year at college um, and just began to share my faith my sophomore and junior year. Um, and probably one of my most exciting years of ministry was my junior year. Um, I had, at all of that, we don't have staff. And so it's kind of like, okay, if if people on campus are going to hear the gospel, it's going to be us. Um, we kind of felt responsible for the campus. And so... Um, that year I had four guy friends and then maybe two or three other girls that we all were coming back to campus off the summer project knowing we want to share the gospel. Um, and the thing that was so powerful was just the camaraderie that we all had. Um, I think those guys just gave us a lot of leadership through their friendship. They were just taking risk on the campus um, and just holding each other accountable. Like, this is what we want to do. We're here to share the gospel and we're doing it together. Um, and that year, it was really cool. The first semester, we just spent a lot of time building a bunch of friendships. Um, and it's a Christian school, so evangelism is different. And um, I think a little bit slower in the beginning. Um, you're trying to figure out who's a Christian, who's not a Christian. Um, but that spring, um, just a lot of really cool things happened. We decided to have like a weekly meeting. Um, and if anything you think about a weekly meeting, it wasn't that. <laughs> it was just us on a dorm floor in one of the guys' dorms in like a study room. Um, and one of my guy friends that was a junior in college would just get up and share a little something from the Bible and share the gospel. And um, it was really cool. Like the first week, I think, or the second week, there were like 50 people there and people were like sitting outside the door listening. Um, and I think it was just really like it just stirred up a lot in us like, whoa, people like we were trying to bring lost people. Um, and I think there were a lot of lost people there. And so it was just really exciting to be a part of. And I just began to see like my friends and um, we just had this like group chat like, hey, I just shared the gospel with this guy. And um, like, I think he's close to becoming a Christian or I just shared the gospel with this girl. And there was just a lot of like momentum. And um, I think we shared the gospel with a lot of people that semester. And um, I remember like walking back to my dorm one night, just praying like, God, I don't know if I'll ever get to be a part of something just like this, like as momentous and as exciting because of this group and this camaraderie that we have. Um, it was just a cool experience that I don't think I would have had apart from those friendships and those guys laboring as well. Um, and then just like a few stories of like kind of individuals within that process. Um, one girl who had lived on um, a floor in my dorm had come into the semester just super like hungry and excited and like broken and ready to hear the gospel and um, just she just fed off of so many people in community and heard the gospel from so many different angles and um, 
became a Christian within a few months, and it was pretty, like, simple and was hungry to grow and learn. Um, but there's another girl I kind of set my sights on in the fall and um, just spent all my time, like, going to the gym with her and um, building a friendship with her and driving her to the train station and just trying everything I could to be her friend and to um, bring the gospel to her life. And um, it didn't go very well. Um, sometimes it was exciting, sometimes it wasn't exciting. Um, and I just remember being pretty discouraged by the end of the year. And she would like come to some of our events, but it was kind of like, you don't seem that interested. And I just poured my life into you more than anyone else. Um, and that summer, she had texted me and said, hey, like, I want to talk to you when you get back to campus. And I saw this like Instagram post of her that said um, that she had become a Christian that summer. Um, and I was like kind of skeptical, but she got back to campus and shared her testimony with me and um, it seemed really legit and my name was nowhere in it. <laughs> you know, like um, I just say that to say like I began to realize I was just a piece in what God was doing. Um, and it was exciting that she had become a Christian um, and I wasn't getting any glory for it and that was okay. Like I really think God used me a lot in her life, um, but there's so many other things that had happened in her life and so many other conversations and so many other people and um, just her life that God had used to save her. Um, and I think I just, we're, we've been studying 1 Corinthians this semester and um, as a staff team and 1 Corinthians 3, 6 says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And it couldn't be more true like after experiencing it that um, we're all just getting to play a small role, but those have been some of my experiences, so. Here's Kenny. Thanks, Janelle. Yeah. Gets me pumped just hearing those stories. I hope it does you as well. Uh, if you want to grab your Bibles, you can turn to Acts chapter 5. We'll spend most of our time just kind of flipping through the book of Acts. Uh, but I want to start out just sharing a little bit about my, my, uh, my Christmas break. Um, I mentioned earlier I'm at Bradley University, and this is my 12th year on staff, which... I don't know if it qualifies me to speak on evangelism or not, but I do know what it does mean. It is after working with college students for 12 years, I'm falling, <laughs> I'm falling dramatically behind. Uh, I'm losing my touch. Uh, unashamedly, it's like I'm just forgetting all, you know, I don't know the lingo. So this fall, uh, I began to put two and two together whenever people started saying the word savage. And I was like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> uh, you guys use that word savage. Is that just kind of, yes, no, somebody, yeah. Just kind of part of your vocabulary, and I remember some of you guys know you're giving me a look like, no, that's not me. Well, uh, anyhow, uh, working with college students is tricky, uh, so I, I decided on the drive up here, I was riding with some freshmen to kind of get them to explain the idea of savage to me, and uh, it was over my, I thought I had it figured out, but then they told me like the complete opposite of what I was thinking, so I figured out that that was off, um, but I figured I needed to go get some help. So being home uh, back in Tennessee for the Christmas break, I find my 13-year-old niece. I'm like, look, I need some help here. I'm trying to relate to these young guys. I just turned 35. I'm, I'm falling behind. So she introduced me to the, the phrase triggered. Do you guys know? You got some laughs here. You ever say that? Triggered? Anybody? So, so some of you are like, no. All right. So just be ready. The 13-year-olds, they're, they're getting it stirred up. It's going to be coming before you know it. Um, um, and it could be, well, she's actually from Florida, so, yeah. Uh, so she was explaining how, like, I think it meant, like, if you're angry or, you know, somebody says something, you're just kind of like, oh. But every time she would say it, she always said it with a smile on her face. So just right when I thought I was getting it, then it was like, nope, I, I still don't understand. <laughs> um, but what uh, she told me one more, uh, FOMO. You guys know FOMO? Yeah. Is that more common, FOMO? What's it stand for? Yeah, that's right. Fear, fear of missing out. Uh, so I decided I'm going to blend FOMO into my talk just because I want to be able to relate with you guys and speak your language. So we'll, we'll get there in a minute. Uh, but, but one of my main points I want to make first was just to talk about uh, the idea of culture in general. Uh, you know, all these phrases, these, these catchphrases, uh, they're just they're part of your culture or our culture, and you just kind of pick them up, you don't even realize it. And that's kind of how culture works. If you want a definition on your outline, culture is, is we just do what the people or community around us does. If you, if you didn't get an outline, there's some back by the front door there. Uh, but culture, and we're going to talk about the power of culture. Uh, you know, culture just kind of comes with ease. 
Uh, you, no one had to really sit you down like, like me. I'm the only one that actually sits down and asks 13-year-olds to explain like lingo to them. Uh, but you guys just kind of pick it up as you're moving through life. And that's, that's kind of what culture is, is. Culture is you end up just doing what the community around you does, and you don't even acknowledge it. It's just, that's just part of what culture is. But I want to share two characteristics with you guys about cult- culture. And the first is, is that uh, culture is stronger than strategy. Culture is stronger than strategy. Uh, and today we're going to talk about an evangelistic culture. And I want you to think about your church that you're involved with or your campus outreach ministry or, or for that matter, in your campus outreach ministry for you to think about your specific group of friends and ask yourself, do we have an evangelistic culture among us? Uh, and I want to say today I could give you like a three-part strategy. You know, I, I could try to send you out of here, but I just knew that that wouldn't really work. You know, I could, I could give you kind of a tool to memorize that you could rattle off and make your presentation a little bit smoother. And that wouldn't work either if the culture that you're living in does not have an evangelistic bend to it. That, that's kind of what Janelle was sharing with us, is, is everybody around me, we just kind of did evangelism, so I did evangelism. And that's, that's what I want you to evaluate. And I, I, I know that that is supposed to be a part of the CODNA on your campus, but I can't guarantee that it is. And I want you to evaluate, is it a part of our culture? Uh, but So stronger than strategy, if we just have this culture of evangelism, we could have the best strategies or the worst strategies, it won't matter, as long as it's a part of our culture. And the second thing that I want to talk about is that culture is never stationary. It's always changing. You know, you just think about those kind of fads that I was throwing off, just different lingo. You know, of course, lingo is always changing. But the thing that I want you to think about is, is even in your campus ministry, you can have an evangelistic culture one year, and then within a year or two, it's gone. It's, and, and so the point behind that is if it's always changing, then that means it's never safe. Is you guys have to determine what do you want the culture of your friend group to be, of your church, of your campus ministry, and then guard it with your life. Do whatever you can, and I want to try to employ you today to guard it, to make it evangelistic. And, and there's just kind of a sad reality that goes along with this on your outline, and that's simply this, is most Christians today never get the opportunity to live in a, amongst an evangelistic culture. You know, so, so kind of picture in your mind here. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not even going to reference Christians that are just doing all these crazy things and living for the world. Uh, I want you to kind of compare. There's two options in your mind. You know, there's the church where everybody loves Jesus. Like, of course, there's nothing wrong with that. But what I am talking about is something beyond that. Is, is I want to see campus ministries and churches who they love Jesus, but they don't just stop there. It's not just inwardly focused. It's just, just like our speaker was talking about this morning. Is, is they're thinking about going out and reaching the world. And, and I want you guys to think about, is that the culture that we've got? But for most Christians, they never get the opportunity to experience it firsthand. But the, the exciting reality is this, you, if you have ever lived amongst it, you can't get enough. You know, just, just as all culture goes, the momentum kind of builds, and you really do. You get to ride the wave of the evangelism momentum. All your fears, whatever barriers you might experience, the things that makes evangelism hard for you, those things are never just going to disappear. But if you live amongst an evangelistic culture, I guarantee you that's going to help you ride past those fears and ride past those barriers. Because culture is what? Is we do what everyone else around us does. Uh, so think about it. If I, if I go to a church where evangelism is stressed day in and day out, then I'm probably going to be held accountable to be out there and sharing my faith. Or I'm just going to hear other people's exciting stories of how they're doing that, and that's just going to get my juices kind of flowing. But if, I, if I'm amongst a ministry where evangelism really is never talked about, then the fears that everyone experiences are going to be much more difficult to get beyond. Uh, so I want to inspire you guys in hopes that you can just kind of picture what it would look like to have evangelistic culture, and then that would be the thing that you would pursue. So I want to share... Two case studies then today. Uh, I told you we're going to look at the book of Acts. We'll do that second. Uh, but I wanted to look at 
uh, just share my own story with you from my own college experience. So if you want to see another sad reality, uh, try and pick me out of that picture there. I'm, I'm the hippie on your left. Uh, so, yeah, it's real. You could tug on it and it wouldn't come off. That was me in college. Uh, but, <clears throat> but in 1998, the guy there in the middle of the picture, his name's DT. You'll get to see a video of him actually tomorrow during the rally. Uh, but DT came to the New Year's conference in 1998 as an atheist. But he went home that year as a Christian. And for about a year, one of the staff guys at Tennessee Tech had been evangelizing him. So when DT left a Christian, he simply did what had been done to him. He started sharing his faith with all his buddies. And about a year after that, I came to school, graduated high school, came to school, and joined the same fraternity as him. And he began to share the gospel with me. And after a couple months, I became a Christian. And guess what I began to do? is I did what I thought all Christians do, is, is I had a bunch of buddies that were wild and crazy like me, and I knew that they had no idea how to get to heaven, and I knew I had the keys that could unlock the castle, so I began to share them with those guys. And it, it wasn't because I was doing anything special. Like, for me, it was just the norm. At, at that point in my life, I really hadn't been to church in about four or five years. I didn't know any other Christian men. The one guy I knew was DT, and what DT did is what I did. It was, it was his culture. And the crazy thing about it is over the course of the next three years, we, we were in a fraternity of just over 100 guys. Uh, but by the end of that three-year period, we saw every one of those 100 guys had the opportunity to hear the gospel one-on-one -on -one with one of us. Uh, DT had a tremendous impact on my life and then one other guy's life, uh, E-Rock was what we called him, my best friend Eric. Uh, but, uh, but I share that with you guys not to impress you, but I, I want to share the irony of the story is this. Uh, you, you can't really tell. We, look, we all look kind of nerdy there. That picture's dated. I just took a picture of a picture with my cell phone. I, I didn't have a d digital picture of me in college. <laughs> That's how old I am. But anyhow, but DT, DT was not like the moneymaker in the fraternity. He, he was not the coolest guy in the house. He really was just your average Joe. You know, you might expect the president of the fraternity, one of the coolest guys, to be the one that changes the culture of the fraternity, right? But that's the irony of the story. That was not DT. He was just kind of one of the average guys in the fraternity. But the other irony of his story is, is he was all alone. It's not like there was 10 other Christians and they were all just kind of doing this thing, trying to follow Jesus and share their faith with everyone else in the house. It was just DT. Uh, he was it. So he, God used this one guy to just launch an evangelistic culture in this fraternity uh, just through an individual. And then the, the third thing that was ironic about that story is, you already share this in a sense, but DT had not been a Christian but, but for really a relatively short amount of time. You know, maybe you would expect the dude who grew up in church, had been a Christian for 10 years, been memorizing scripture left and right every day of his life, but that, that wasn't the case either. This guy, he had not been a Christian for two minutes before he just felt compelled to start sharing the gospel with others. And that's the beauty of the story. You know, I, I have the privilege of knowing how the story ends. And it's so amazing. Like, I got to see all the other dudes that came to Christ, and I got to see all the guys that were kind of hating on the Christians in the fraternity as well. But it, it, for me to sit down and think, how did this start? You know, <laughs> what happened here? And to just realize, man, it really just started with something very simple, just with one guy that was willing to, to give his life to the thing that he had seen happen to him. Uh, so that, that was my first case study. Uh, now let's look at the book of Acts. I want to kind of do the same thing with the book of Acts. So turn to the end of chapter 5, and I'm going to tell you the end of the story first. And then we'll go back to the beginning of the book. So grab your Bibles, the end of chapter 5. You can look at verse 42 with me. Uh, just read along with me. It says this. And every day and in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. So that's, that's the happy ending to the story. Uh, you know, if, if you want to get a biblical kind of definition for the, this idea of an evangelistic culture, the book of Acts is it. Now, there's a bunch of crazy stuff that happens in the book of Acts. It was a weird time in history. But if, I just encourage you guys at some point over your Christmas breaks to read through at least the first five chapters, if not the whole book, and you just get this enthusiasm like, man, the gospel is going out like crazy. 
people are coming to Christ left and right like nuts. It's just so encouraging. But it will give you an idea of what an evangelistic culture looks like. So that was in this story, you know. Isn't that what we want to experience? The gospel is being shared every day and from house to house. You just got to get this picture that, man, it's really going out to everybody. That, that is exciting. It's, it's not the, uh, the random gospel going out. It became the norm. All right, so now let's go back and look at chapter 2. We're just going to look at a couple other uh, select passages from the book of Acts. So flip back a few pages to chapter 2, and let's talk about how this trend started for the first church. What, what was going on with those guys that we can learn? So we're going to look at the end of chapter 2, verse 42. It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. You know, you, you don't really get the impression of evangelistic culture yet. Let's, let's keep going. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. So what's going on? They're making a big deal of getting some fellowship on and coming and listening to people preach from the word of God, spending all kinds of time in prayer. And then what's the result? What's the last verse there? Back to verse 47. It says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. I remember the first time I read that being like, Dude, this is what I want to mark my life. This is what I want to mark my culture. That, you know, I'm tired of the semesters where you know, we get to the December and we add it up and we had 10 people come to Christ. It's like, dude, I want to be able to look back and say, We had people come to Christ day by day. And God was just doing this amazing work. Okay, so let's, let's go ahead. Let's keep flipping through Acts. Flip over to chapter 4 now. Let's, let's keep seeing what else is happening amongst this, uh, the new church, the first church. So now chapter 4, Acts 4.13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. So just, just kind of the same old thing, just like I was telling you about DT, just your average Joe. Even the early church, who we know the gospel just spreads like nuts, what the, what the New Testament world said about them is they were common, uneducated men. Next part there, verse 13, it says, And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But Verse 14, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them, to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, what shall we do with these men? So you've got some religious leaders in the city. They've brought in these Christian men, Peter and John, who've been telling everybody about Jesus. And they're like, dude, this is getting out of hand. we got to stop this. So they're, they're talking to one another. They say, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Did you guys catch that? All the inhabitants of Jerusalem. This is awesome. <laughs> Man, the gospel is going out in big ways. And it says, and we cannot deny it. Verse 17, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more and to charge them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. You know, you, again, you just kind of get this spirit. They had an evangelistic culture, even in the face of extreme opposition, where people are literally just point blank telling them, stop it. Quit telling people about Jesus. And they, they, they said, man, we, we can't. We've got to listen to God. We've got to keep doing this thing. All right, look, one more, okay? Hang in there with me. This gets even more exciting. So now we're in chapter 5, and I want you to look at verse 27 with me. What's going to happen next, right? They just, they, these leaders brought them in, and they told them, stop it. So what happens between then and, and kind of the next couple days? Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. <laughs> so we're, we're just back at the same scene. Uh, they have brought them back in before the council, and they're, they're having their little counseling session. It says, and the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charge you not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem. You have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, 
and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is the key part right here, verse 32. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So, so what happened? The exact same thing. They told them for the second time, now stop it. We told you to stop it. You didn't stop it. We brought you in. We're telling you to stop it again. All right, now let's go to the end of chapter 5, and we'll be done uh, with our story time. Uh, we already read the last verse. Let's look at verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And then verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Man, the, these guys are our heroes. We, we would not be here today if it weren't for them. Think, think of all the times along the path they could have just checked out and taken the easy way. But because they were willing to listen to God and not to men, they were able to establish amongst themselves an evangelistic culture. So, so this is what I want to do with the rest of our time. Rather than just talk about all the things that makes evangelism hard, I want to take a closer look at three marks of what was going on amongst their community that I'm convinced helped establish this evangelistic culture. And if we could try to embrace these three marks, then maybe we can experience the same thing as they did. Uh, so I really want you guys to memorize these things. So I'm going to, those three big blanks on your outline are these three phrases right here. I'm not going to explain them, not yet. Uh, I just want you to memorize them. Uh, so I've got an image to go along with each of them, and then we're going to talk about them one at a time. So personal investments, you got this little dude here carrying around some money bags, just, just, to, ha just to give you an image to hopefully stick it in your head. Uh, the third big blank on your outline is light in the darkness. So we just got a, a little candle in a dark room. Pretty simple stuff, right? Uh, trying to make this one easy. I know it's been a long week. <laughs> uh, and then the last one, this one's a little complex. Sorry about that. Uh, witness in court. We've got a picture of a witness in court. Okay. So let, let, if you're a visual learner like me, let those images help you memorize these things. But I really hope that 10 or 15 days from now, whenever the spring semester kicks off, these things will kind of stick in your head a little bit better because of uh, those three images. Um, but let's, let's go ahead and look at the first one, personal investments. All right, personal investments. So here, here's, uh, before we jump into these three things, uh, think back, I said at Acts chapter 2, what were they doing? Were they out there sharing their faith just yet? Uh, some of that was going on, but what were they doing a lot of? It says that they were all gathering together and listening to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they, they were experiencing personal investments. They were getting poured into I've been experiencing it even this week. I've been on staff for 12 years now. This is like my 15th New Year's conference. And, and I get to share my faith a decent bit during the school year, but I don't, I don't separate from the fact that, man, whenever I come to things like the New Year's conference, it just gets me stoked. I get, a, I get so much input from the Word of God. It helps motivate me and sends me out. Uh, but what were the apostles teaching? What were the apostles' teachings? This is what I'm convinced that the apostles' teachings were. Like, what, what were they saying? I'm convinced that they were saying whatever Jesus told them to say. <laughs> or, or they were just repeating Jesus' teachings. Th these are the first leaders of the early church, the 12 disciples who followed Jesus around for three years. It only makes sense that they're thinking, now we've got the opportunity to get up and teach people, man, Jesus was the man, so we're just going to repeat back to them what he taught us. So I'm, I'm convinced, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what their sermons look like, but I'm convinced that it looked like things like Matthew 6. This comes straight out of one of Jesus' sermons, the Sermon on the Mount. His apostle, or the disciples were there, and I think that they were teaching things like this, like Jesus had taught them. So read, read this with me. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. I added those exclamation points. They weren't there in the Bible, but uh, sometimes when I read the Bible, I'm just like, I just want to stand up and scream. It's like, yes, like you read this stuff and it does something to you, you know? But dude, when I'm online and I'm shopping for Christmas deals, like I can, I want to scream yes too, because there's something in my heart that loves spending money and getting the cool clothes or the new pair of shoes or whatever. But we need personal investments of the Bible. And so I'm reading this right now and I'm getting pumped. Did I just, what just happened? Okay. Oh, let's keep it. Where neither moth nor rust destroys. Throw in some more exclamation points. Man, Jesus is saying you can make investments that are never going to die. They're never going to waste away. But he's saying, but if you want to invest your life in the things of this world, they're all going to burn up. They're all going to rust away. So I believe the disciples, they heard these things over and over, and they just, it, was just, it just became a simple truth in their mind. Personal investments matter. I want to invest in things that matter, that last. So that was Mr. Moneybags, that previous image. So let that one stick in your head. Um, but maybe to illustrate this point a little, a little more, uh, I've got this diagram here. But the Bible is full of uh, what, what people who are smarter than me would call uh, indicatives. And, and they would say the indicatives empower the imperatives. Now, if you're an English major, you know exactly what that means. But I was a math guy. <laughs> so I vaguely remember those terms. But every time I try to memorize that phrase, I always get it backwards. So I'm going to make it real simple on you. What, what the Bible, a lot of what the Bible's theme is, is it says that the who empowers the do. And, and a lot of times we just get focused on, man, the do. I know what the Bible's calling me to do. But we need to be just as interested in reminding ourselves about the who. When I spend time reading things like Matthew 6, Jesus is saying, you're my disciple now. You're someone who lives for eternity, who invests in eternal things. It's kind of reminding me of this is who I am now. And that, that impacts what I want to do. And what I'm getting at is, is if we remind ourselves that, that we are to be witnesses, that we are to be evangelists, then it's going to compel us to go out uh, into the do. Um, but, I, but I promised you guys we were, we were going to talk about FOMO, right? <laughs> so let's get past some of the principal stuff and let's, let's talk about the actual practicals. Uh, so what does this look like then on a day-to-day -day basis, the idea of personal investments? Um, my, okay, so I came to Christ at the end of my freshman year, and DT, that dude literally, if there's, you know, there's 15 semesters, or 15 weeks in a semester, he would have asked me 15 times to go to that weekly prayer meeting, and I told him no every time, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's those kind of things, is that, that, and for me, it's because I was a bookworm, you know, I, I wanted to ace all those classes, and, but I, was, I also like to have fun. So I was going to blow all my weekend having fun until Sunday night, which happened to be the same time as, as the prayer meeting. Uh, but, dude, that, that impacted me because I wasn't getting those consistent times of experiencing the who. So that I would, and, and I didn't share my faith or I, I wouldn't talk to even other Christians as much as I probably would have if I was spending more time in fellowship like we were seeing in Acts chapter 2. Um, but, but that's kind of what I mean, is, is for you guys to begin to think about when are the times that you view spiritual opportunities for spiritual investment, you view them as a sacrifice rather than an investment. When, when you think to yourself, man, like DT's trying to tell me, Kenny, this could be an investment for you. And it, it really felt more like a sacrifice. And it's because my value system had gotten backwards. Or, or I was still working out of an old value system, and I was having to replace my way of thinking. So that when someone would offer me opportunities like the New Year's conference, I would just jump on them. Man, I'm so pumped to see you guys here. Is you're already kind of getting convinced of this idea. Um, let's skip. Uh, so I'm going to give you an action step. Is I want you to identify some competing loves in your life. And uh, a way to identify those would be to. Try to think about the things that feel like a sacrifice to you whenever someone comes along and they offer you an opportunity for a personal investment in your own life. And, and try to identify what, what is specific to you. Like, literally, think back to this last semester, and what, what were those things? You know, for one guy, like me, it was, you know, it was the book. For the next person, it's just, man, on Saturday nights, that's my time to just unwind yeah, I'm not going to be out there drinking this stuff, but I'm wanting to at least just have some really good hang time with all my boys. And 
church comes at 9.30 in the morning on Sundays, man, I just, I just can't find myself waking up. 9.30? Wow, that sounds crazy. Uh, you know, so what is it for you? Uh, maybe it's you're just going to have to go to bed a couple hours early on Saturday night. That, that was hard for me. Like, I was able to put the drinking behind me after I became a Christian, but even just the social life and just having the fun. So maybe it's some of it is you're going to have to let go of some relationships, or, or at least at times. But try to think about uh, what that might be. Um, college students have, have tons of loves. Uh, boyfriends, girlfriends, internships, summer jobs, their career that they're thinking about, their, their schoolwork. Now, I'm not necessarily saying you just got to throw all those things out of your life, but at times, if you're going to make these personal investments, you're going to have to trade them off uh, in order to spend time investing in yourself. And, and the, whole, the whole point of that was just kind of this, this imagery right here, is, is you need to be filled up so that you can spill out into others. And if you're not getting filled up, then you'll, you'll never go out there. Uh, so the question is, what makes evangelism so hard? It's fear of missing out. I don't want to miss out on all that fun time with my friends. Uh, but it, but if, if you're not willing to trade that for some spiritual investments, you'll probably never be in this spill out. All right, so what's, uh, what's our second mark of an evangelistic culture? Now, light in the darkness. And that was the word imagery that I wanted to give you. And I, get, I just get this straight from Jesus' teaching as well. Uh, this would be verses like Matthew 5, earlier in the Sermon of the Mount. Um, but it's pretty, man, the neat thing about Jesus' teaching is his, he used so many word illustrations, they, they can just stick with you. And I think that's how the, the apostles, the disciples, even years later, were able to continue to teach these things because Jesus often taught in these word images and they just kind of stuck with them. Okay, so here's your test. What was the first word image I shared with you? You guys remember the money bags and what, were, what did Jesus talk about? In Matthew 6. Yeah, your, your treasures, your investments. So uh, here's another word image then. Uh, he's trying to draw out. In Matthew 5, he says, you are the light of the world. The thing about word images is they're almost so basic, so simple, uh, that you can overlook their value. I personally think they're so money because they're so basic. Read this with me. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, so, so Jesus introduces this simple illustration. He's like, put a lamp on a lampstand, and he's like, wouldn't it be stupid if you just covered it up? He's like, that's not what light's for, right? What's light meant to do? You know, take, this, take the cover off and let the light shine to fill the darkness. And he's saying, you know what, what the world is like? The world is like that darkness. And you know what you're like? You are that light. And, and he's trying to help them see. So you want to see a problem? Is that if you are removed from the world, then what is left? If you who are the light are removed from the darkness, then the only thing that is left is that darkness. And he's trying to compel them. It's so critical that you would still let your life be around non-Christians. And, and I know that my point right here is going to be so basic. You're going to be like, no, duh, Kenny. Uh, but it's just this. Is, is you've got to continue to build relationships with non-Christians. You know, for some of you, you come to college as a Christian, and, and you join Campus Outreach or the church or whatever, and you really were looking for a safe haven, and you, you've yet to begin building relationships with non-Christians. Or maybe you're like me, and I became a Christian in college, and when I hung out with my non-Christian buddies still, man, I end up finding myself in a lot of trouble at times, making a lot of dumb decisions. Uh, so there is a balance there. But I didn't want to go to the other extreme and totally remove myself and not continue to build those relationships. That, that, were, that wasn't so much of a challenge to have non-Christian friends for me in college, but it is now at 35 uh, so I would be willing to bet that when you graduate, uh, you'll probably go and join a church sometime. But I want to convince you, if evangelism is hard now, it's only going to get harder when you graduate. And part of the reason it's so hard for my, my peers who are 35 out there is because the only people they know are the Christians' buddies that they've got at church. They're not still out there building those friendships. In other words, is they have removed the light from the darkness. You know, what Jesus was saying then is no different today. 
those people down the hall from you in your dorm or in your fraternity who don't know Jesus, they are living in the darkness. And what Jesus is saying is, is they have no hope. <laughs> they, they can't see the truth. You are the light. You see the truth. And you have got to go live amongst them so that they can at least see firsthand a picture of what Jesus is like and what Christianity is like. And when we look down our noses at them, I can't believe that they're drinking and doing that stuff. Man, that's, that's removing yourself from the darkness. Or not being intentional to go and build those friendships with the lost. That's removing yourself from the darkness. This is critical that we would continue to live amongst the darkness. Uh, so what makes evangelism so hard? We said FOMO, fear of missing out. So again, practically, what does that look like? For DT, it looked like this. He shared his faith with his peers, the guys that were his own age. But eventually, a lot of those guys just kind of, you know, they weren't having anything to do with it. And so he had to make a decision. Am I just going to do the easy thing, and we're just going to hang out, and we're going to do, you know, all the fun, you know, silly stuff that we always do, just go watch movies or go off-road in our Jeeps or whatever. But what he chose to do is, is man, I'm going to leave some of those peer relationships behind so that I can go begin to build relationships with younger students. And, dude, I guarantee DT felt the FOMO, <laughs> that, that he probably felt like, gosh, like hanging out with freshmen again. But I can tell you, I'm so thankful he didn't let FOMO rule his life, that he was willing to come back into the dorm, leave the fraternity house, come back into the dorms, and hang out with little freshman me and all of my buddies, and to see some of my other buddies come to Christ. Uh, so for you, what is it uh, that you're in fear of missing out, that you're not willing to invest time? So, so, so kind of like someone's inviting you to come to that prayer meeting, and it was good for yourself, Maybe somebody has invited you to come to an evangelistic meeting on campus, or they're leading an evangelistic Bible study, maybe even on your own floor, and you're just like, ah, I just don't have time to make it to that deal. Uh, I would encourage you to start building a habit of making time to invest in letting your light shine before men, that that would become the norm for you. So I've got another, uh, another action step, and that is simply this, is identify 10 people that you don't already know that you think are non-Christians that you could build friendships with this spring. I'm not saying turn your back on all your current friendships, but I would encourage you to always be thinking, how can we branch out even further and build more relationships and just befriend them, begin hanging around them, having fun, even if it might even require you to go kind of out of your way and have to miss out on some of your other, your other activities. All right, and then lastly... Witnesses in court. This, this is our third uh, image here. We've got the picture of the dude in court there. Okay, so let me ask you guys, what do witnesses in court do? They testify. They do exactly what the apostles said they were doing in Acts chapter 5. Uh, those guys brought them in the second time. And they said, stop talking about all this Jesus nonsense. And then they said, we are witnesses to what we have seen and heard. And if we don't talk about it, we're the ones who witnessed it, then who is going to talk about it? So imagine you're in court and a lawyer has, uh, has found you because you were the witness to a murder scene. And they come and they bring you in and they put you on the stand and in America, we've got the opportunity to plead the fifth. I, I get all that. But the whole point is, is you're the one who witnessed it. And that lawyer, his case is built around witnesses opening their mouths and telling the courtroom what they have seen and heard. And that, that is our job. I think the apostles got it. It was, it was, again, it was another simple word image. But it was just as simple as this, is if we don't talk about Jesus, then who is? So if today, if we don't talk about Jesus, then who is? And th this is how FOMO plays itself out with this illustration, being witnesses. Is, is I think we begin, you're going to hang in there with me for a second, but we begin to swap our roles with God. The Bible's calling us to open our mouths and just tell what we have seen and heard. But what we do is, is we begin to swap roles with God. You know, back to the illustration in the courtroom. It's almost as like we put ourselves in the shoes of the lawyer. 
you know, I'm on the t- I'm on the stand and I'm just supposed to be a witness, but I'm looking over there at the jury and I think it's my job to convince them of the truth. But the lawyer's like, no, 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 just leave that up to me. I need you to do something very simple. Just tell them what you saw and heard. So the way that we do that with God is, is uh, let me go ahead and give you an action step. Um, I'll come back to the passage here. The action step is, is those 10 people, I want you com- to commit to share the gospel with all 10 of them. Don't stop until you share the gospel with all 10. And I think what oftentimes we do is this, is, is we jump out there and we share the gospel with the first person, but they don't give us the response that we're looking for. And we get so caught up in looking for results that we stop taking responsibility for our part. Is, is, is we just need to think about being faithful to our part and don't worry so much about the results that are produced. Is, is I share the gospel with this first person, and if it don't go so well, then there's a good chance I'm not going to move on to number two or number three or number four. You see what I'm saying? But if I realize the results aren't up to me, that's not even my part. I'm switching roles with God. God and the Holy Spirit are the only one who can change that person's mind and decide, man, this stuff is awesome. So if all 10 of those people reject me, I can say I've done my part. It was not my job to get the results. But I think we're so focused on results so many times. The, the FOMO is, I want, you know, I've heard the other person came to Camp's Prayer and how that person came to Christ. Well, and that sounds so exciting, and I'm wanting to experience that, but I haven't experienced that, so I just kind of throw in the towel and give up. I'll tell you this, is I am so glad that DT didn't give up. He he. He started out with a bunch of other dudes and shared the gospel for three or four semesters before he saw his first convert, me. And I'm so thankful that he didn't stop. But it's because he understood this. Is the results weren't up to him. He just needed to open his mouth and share. And, and that was just our mantra. And we just said, dude, we're just going to tell everybody in our house. And we're not going to get so caught up on if they're ragging, us, ragging on us or not. We just want to see that at least everyone in our fraternity has the opportunity to hear the truth. Okay, so let's look then at Jesus' last teaching that I'm going to share with you. And that is this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 through 18. Uh, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Be aware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. He was coaching his disciples. And we already know it happened, right? We already read in the story, Acts chapter 5. Long before this ever happened, he told them it's going to happen. And I think that helped them. Once people started telling him, stop it, and started beating them, they, they said, man, Jesus told us what to do when this happens. We're not to look at the results. We're not to look and say, man, they're rejecting us. Maybe we're not doing the right thing. As Jesus told them, people are going to try and stop you. And when that happens, verse 23, look at this. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. He's saying it doesn't even matter, not even 10. I don't care if the whole town rejects you. Keep going. You're eventually going to find them. They are out there. You will find people that will put their trust in me. And we slow... My fear is is that you guys get into the cafeteria or out on the intramural field or in your classroom and you just kind of launch into that conversation and someone kind of gives you a weird look or you can kind of tell they're a little bit agitated and you stop there. Man, I want to encourage you to push past that and get let's get the gospel out there. It's their only hope. Um, so I, I told, in conclusion then, I want to give you two options. I told you that there's kind of two churches out there. Uh, there's those that are in love with Jesus and they're, they're studying the word and they're doing good things, but it's kind of incomplete. Then there's those churches who are doing those same things, but they're also focused on getting the gospel out there. So what, what happens if you're in one of these and it's not the evangelistic culture? Does that mean you have the excuse to not obey Jesus' commandments? No. This is, I want you to be the DT, Okay. Be the DT from someone else. Be a culture starter. Now, if you're over here, man, there, there's all kinds of students in our ministry who've kind of come in and come out. They have lived amongst an evangelistic culture, but they never got it. 
And the reason is this, is, is I think it's because option A, is they never went and found a model. And I just don't, I don't think there's, it's an, it is a correlation, the fact that I followed DT around like a little puppy dog for a good year before I really started getting out there and testing this whole evangelism thing out. But by the end of that year, I'd just seen it so many times, I couldn't keep my mouth shut. But I can count, I've been on staff for 12 years. Uh, I had a staff guy last fall say, Kenny, can we just go to the cafeteria? He was new on staff. Can we just go to the cafeteria? I just want to see you share your faith. And of all my staff on my campus, you want to know who got to see me share the gospel the most? You know, do the math. It's pretty simple. That guy. But there's been so many staff who've never just asked me that question. Can we just go and let me watch you? And, and over the years, the students, all the students that have come through our ministry, they hear the messages, go and do it, but so seldomly do they come and just act. Like, dude, your staff and your campus, there's nothing they'd rather do. But a lot of times, the students, they never even come and ask for a model. Find someone. Beg them if, it, if it's what you got to do to get them to share the gospel in front of you so you can see it. So many Christians never get the opportunity to see someone else share the gospel in front of them. And then option B was be the DT. Be the culture starter. Be a model for someone else. Uh, just a little story just to get you uh, pumped. At Tennessee Tech, where, where DT was in this fraternity, uh, he started the evangelistic culture in our fraternity. But on the campus, the campus outreach at that point was still very small. So it was just him and maybe three or four of his buddies. Uh, but amongst them, they had evangelistic culture in the dorm, on the football team, but it was all very small. Uh, but even when it's really small, it matters. Someone's got to get it started. But they were all men. On the women's side, nothing practically. And my, my wife became a Christian in college uh, before we were married. And she came to the New Year's conference like this her last semester of college. And then she graduated and she went on the summer project. And for her, it was just as simple, like, man, I've been a Christian now for about two years, and, and this is just attracted to me. I'm drawn to it. And she said, so I'm going to put off physical therapy school so I can go on the summer project because I want to grow in evangelism. And then she, she went to physical therapy school for a semester, and then she decided, you know what? I'm going to put that, that chapter at least on pause, if not aside. And she transferred back to Tennessee Tech. She had no real intention of being a teacher, but she went into grad school in education so that she could ask one of the staff wives to disciple her. But the staff wife had a couple little kids, so she wasn't even able to get into the dorms. Uh, so my wife, she just started going over to the freshman dorm by herself, or my uh, crush, I should say. <laughs> We're married at that time. Uh, but Laura just started going over there to the girls' dorm. And she just said, man, if not me, then who? If not now, then when? And I'd encourage you guys, you might have to be the tip of the spear like Laura did. And it's just neat to think, now 10 years later, Tennessee Tech's women's ministry has just exploded. Uh, but that's how this works, is it just begins to bleed out to others. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach Minneapolis the College Ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at newyearsconference.com.